0: Hello, everyone. My name is Brendan Cieco. I'm the founder of QZAM. First and foremost, I want to thank everyone who is joining us today. I hope that each and every one of you is staying safe, keeping healthy and optimistic during these very challenging times that we're facing. I also want to give a big, huge, dinosaur-sized thank you to our panelists. I'm really excited to have both of you on today. If you're joining for the first time, welcome. And those of you who have attended any of our past webinars, it's great to see you again and welcome back. We hope that today's conversation is helpful, informative, and provides a little splash of inspiration for you today. This is uh, the fifth in a series of conversations we've hosted on the important topics of how to engage audiences during coronavirus. Over the past month or so, over 15,000 museum professionals have joined us from all over the world. And right now there are about 3,000 people here with us today, thank you for, for joining. The other day I heard something that really moved me. It was a quote from Oscar Wilde who once said, we're all in the gutter, but some of us are looking up at the stars. And for me, it mirrored everything that surrounds us today and probably what most of us are feeling right now. It's been difficult these past few weeks, but we must remain positive, creative and focused and no question about it, there are new challenges, but in the face of these challenges, there are also new opportunities to connect and to reach and to serve our audiences and our communities and to serve each other. We must keep looking up at the stars. Necessity is the mother of all invention and great ideas come from many different places and perspectives. It's been truly incredible to watch the museum and cultural community from all around the world come together and share ideas and to support each other. The theme for today's conversation is thinking outside the box to reach audiences inside their homes. And now I'd love to introduce our special guests. In the left corner, we have Sloan McRae. Sloan is the marketing director of Pittsburgh's Carnegie Museum of Natural History and co-host of the museum's podcast. A is for Anthropocene, living in the age of humanity. A professionally produced playwright and children's author, he oversees the museum's marketing, public relations, and digital engagement strategies. Sloan's previous posts include director of visitor and museum services for Carnegie Museum of Art, In Natural History, Managing Director of Shenandoah Conservatory, and Director of Marketing and Communication at Pittsburgh City Theater. He was named a 2019 Pittsburgh Marketing Leader of the Year by American Marketing Association, and Sloan quarantines in Oakmont, Pennsylvania with his wife, who teaches middle school English, two adorable neurodiverse children, and a rescue mutt. Thanks so much for joining us, Sloan. Thanks. And I love that you updated your bio to say that you don't live in Oakmont, but you quarantine in Oakmont. It's a very socially responsible thing to do. I appreciate it. And then in our, in our right corner, we have Caitlin Kearney. Caitlin is the digital strategy and engagement manager at the Field Museum, where she's worked for the past four years. She writes and edits content for the field's website, including managing the blog, in addition to planning an editorial calendar across departments, and maintaining the museum's internal style guide. She's presented at MCN, Museum Computer Network, and Museums in the Web on topics including a dinosaur chatbot, and how many publishers your website should really have. Before coming to the field, she was a new media assistant at the National Museum of American History, and completed her museum studies degree at the George Washington University. Originally from Maryland and now living in Chicago, she enjoys tending to her community garden plot, historical walking tours, and bad reality TV. Thanks so much for joining us, Caitlin. Yeah, thanks. What's your favorite bad reality TV before we jump into the serious stuff?
1: Well, there are some Bachelor fans out there, but I also have to advocate for 90 Day Fiance.
0: Very cool, very cool. Awesome. And lastly, I'm Brennan Siecco. I'm the founder of QZM and I'll be your host and moderator for today's discussion. Sloan, let's start for a question for you. In a recent blog published by AAM, you discussed how the Carnegie Museum of Natural History has started to use TikTok and has been doing so with huge success. Tim Pierce, your museum's snail guy, has become a popular personality entertaining audiences with his snail jokes, his songs, and other lighthearted content. Can you talk a little bit about what prompted you to start using this new channel? What is unique about TikTok versus other social media channels, and how has it allowed you to amplify your reach and impact? The
2: first part I want to answer is... uh what makes tiktok unique and it's virtually troll free so far which is such a welcome respite on social media it seems that the what drives engagement on tiktok and what what incentivizes it is not the same algorithms on facebook and twitter which can be outrage factories and it's, it's just very wholesome and devoid of trolls so far it's 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 great about a year ago we filmed a year's worth of snail jokes, or I guess there's some slug jokes in there too, some mollusk jokes with Tim Pierce, who has always had a cult following in Pittsburgh. And if you've seen the TikToks, you'll know why, that he's amazing and you have to use what you have. And one of the reasons we filmed all these jokes with him, and Caitlin, you might have found this as well, is that people often don't know what a natural history museum is. The word history in there really uh, throws people for a loop. And they often think that that the science isn't current. And so we have 22 million objects, all of which are part of rich collections that are receiving contemporary research and contemporary discoveries. And that has been, for me, as a lifelong Pittsburgher for the most of my life, it's it's been one of the untold stories of the museum until I got there as an employee, just the, the breadth of the research that was, that was happening. So I wanted to share that with everyone, especially the, our region. And Tim Pierce is a great gateway drug for, for, for all of that. We filmed these years' worth of jokes with him, and they, they, they took off on the other channels, but not with the engagement and the reach that we were hoping for. And that cult following maintained. And then Aaron Sutherland on my team, who writes most of our social media content, pitched me back in, I think, early 2020 about, let's try TikTok again, because we had tried some cute animal videos that also didn't quite take off. And we put a Tim Pierce TikTok out there. And it was well-timed because it, it happened to be Michelle Obama's birthday when this particular one landed and she was the punchline. It was a a snail joke about Barack and Michelle Obama. And it went crazy and it it got a million views in a really quick amount of time. And ever since then, there's just been great demand. Um, If you read the comments, you'll see what I mean by it being virtually devoid of trolls. People are saying, we have to protect Tim. This guy is too wholesome for for me. I will take a bullet for you. To which Tim replies, no, take a slug. It's been great. And, and while that's been very lighthearted and also very light, frankly, it's also given us an opportunity to introduce some other content, which isn't as popular on TikTok, but still it's engagement beyond what we have seen before. And so we're able to, I think I, I said Tim was a gateway drug. We're able to use him as that and then, and then, Feed people some science when they're not looking, and that's been successful.
0: That's really interesting, because we've often heard from the museum community that, ah, if you have cute, cuddly animals, that's a sheer win. But it's interesting to hear you share that. That wasn't really landing with your audience. It was all of the Mm -hmm. cult-following. Its eccentric educational aspects and personnel that were working really well. And Caitlin, to c- take this and run with it a little, a few weeks ago, we were all super excited to see the field dinosaur mascot, Sue, running around the museum and manning the information booth and up to all kinds of shenanigans. And this was shortly after your Chicago neighbor, the Shedd Aquarium's penguins went viral and many museums were stumped at how to attract attention without the benefit of living cute, cuddly animals, living collections. Can you talk through the idea a little bit and how it all materialized with Sue running around the museum and taking over your social media channels?
1: Yeah, definitely. We are next-door neighbors with Shed and we are often very jealous of their cute living collections. (laughs) I have to give credit to Katherine Urich, who is our social media manager, for coming up with this idea and making it happen. We already had the inflatable T-Rex suit in our possession from previous video activities. I think even though we don't have living animals, Sue has a personality that has grown over time. Sue has a Twitter account. People know and follow Sue either in conjunction with the Field Museum or even just a totally devoted Sue fan or super fan, as we say. I think there are a lot of ways to show personality without a living collection. I love what the Getty has been doing with the Getty Museum Challenge and a lot of other art museums have been participating. And that's a way that they're essentially bringing their collections to life in partnership with their community members, which is really cool to see. I think also part of it might be shifting the goal from how do we attract attention and more to... How do we engage with our community and offer them something of value? And something of value can be something that's useful, or it can be even just something that's enjoyable, which is where Sue, roaming around the museum, landed. That's how that came about. A mix of creativity and spontaneity, but also being able to play off of what The Shed had already put into motion.
0: Excellent. And uh, open this up to both of you as it relates to TikTok, spontaneity, and creative content. TikTok is an emerging and relatively untapped channel for many museums. And that said, TikTok has over 800 million active users worldwide, higher than average engagement rates compared to Instagram and Twitter, and has been one of the most popular downloaded apps of the last couple of years. Other organizations might just be starting to use platforms like Instagram or Snapchat or Twitter, or experimenting with new ways to leverage these channels, even using Instagram stories. What do people need to know about TikTok? And do you have any advice about starting to build a following on a relatively new channel, leveraging and effectively showing the spontaneous side of your organization? I'd love to hear about that from both of you. TikTok,
2: for us, we've found it works best when there's a punchline. And if you've seen our, our videos, they don't, the punchline doesn't necessarily have to be good. Some of Tim's jokes are quite bad, but that's part of the rhythm. And it, it's, I think it, it's nice to have, they're so short, but it, it's nice to have that narrative beginning, middle, and an end. It's very satisfying. So if and, there's, there's something to land, I think that, that
0: it helps. That's interesting. It sounds like, is it a little bit more of a forgiving platform in that your jokes or punchlines don't even need to be that good or funny for things to, to go viral or to be effective in reaching visitors and audience?
2: In this case, I think for us, it's the fact that they're not funny is, is what's funny. And I think that like all social media, authenticity is pretty key. And with TikTok, it seems to really be part of the equation. So so the more authentic I think you are, the more forgiving your your fans will be. And as I said, so far, it's really just very good natured. Hopefully I just didn't jinx the entire platform.
0: No, that's all good. And Sloan, can you give a quick little explanation about what TikTok is? I'm realizing that a lot of people in the audience right now maybe are not familiar with the platform. It's completely new to them. I do want to mention we will post a link to a, a recent article about how museums are using TikTok, a little bit about what it is for those that would like to read it after. But Sloan, could you share a little bit about what TikTok is?
2: Yeah, I, I want to say it's the fastest growing um, digital platform in terms of, of downloads and subscribers uh, from late 2019 to 2020. I could be wrong about that, but it's it's you know, it was rivaling Spotify, Netflix, things that aren't just strictly social media, but it is a social media platform for short Usually, musical videos. Most of our stuff is not musical, but most of the the TikTok fair is is musical, and it drives engagement like no other social media channel. Because if you just browse it, you'll see what I'm saying. But the the amount of say likes per amount of views a video gets are higher virtually on any post versus the other social media channels. Um, the same thing if you look at the comments. We are logging sometimes thousands of comments in a single post, which for us wow. uh, is, is, is quite new. And, and then it also invites imitation. It, it has a lot of internal dialogue. This is funny because I'm a Gen Xer, so I'm probably sounding quite old to uh, a lot of the audience who can describe TikTok better than I can. But the, the dialogue between users in a single post is quite nice and encouraging because sometimes it creates imitation. We have people who imitate our Tim Pierce, And lip sync Hmm. to his jokes and do their own versions, either with split screen or just total recreations. And um, that imitation and response dialogue is is not unique to us. There's a lot of uh, people who are really good at cultivating that.
0: Great. Caitlin, can you talk a little bit about what your journey has been on the side of online content and social media from a creative and spontaneous standpoint? over the last couple of weeks, last couple of months, um, definitely in the more immediate coronavirus period that the museum's been closed?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. We are not on TikTok yet. It's definitely something we have thought about, especially after making the Sue videos and feeling that those were really, seemed to match really well in terms of tone to a lot of other things that are happening on TikTok. I think In terms of creativity and spontaneity, this is probably a really hard time to be doing that. I think if you find opportunities, it's great to take them, but at the same time, I'm sure all of us are dealing with the essential, urgent information that we need to convey to people and working with the content that we can access from home. We don't necessarily have access to all of the material that we would like to have. And again, engaging with other museums is always a great approach and probably now more than ever.
0: For sure. And talking about a couple other ways that the Field Museum has approached audience engagement from a remote capacity. You have experience bringing a dinosaur chatbot to life, also known as Maximo the titanosaur. In recent years, we've seen institutions throw their hat in the ring around things like chatbots. I know the Carnegie Museums as well has launched the Andy Carnegie bot back in 2018 as a summer guide to the museum. And in moments like now when communications and social media professionals are working overtime they're inundated with questions and needs and comments could chatbots be a helpful way to communicate with audiences and maybe help offer some answers to the communities at home are are you or any of your colleagues or any other organizations using chatbots or similar technologies right now
1: yeah that's a great question our chatbot is called message maximo and as you mentioned It's our titanosaur, which we moved into our main hall in 2018. It was a way to introduce people to him, build a personality for him. But I think it depends really heavily on what type of information you're hoping the chatbot will take on for you. Building and maintaining a chatbot itself is quite a bit of work. Um, I think especially so if your goal is to make sure that the information is up-to-date on a daily basis, which is how a lot of institutions have been operating lately. Yeah. Right now, we're continuing to promote Message Maximo as a great at-home entertainment or potential education resource, or not directing people to it as a source of the latest information. I think there are some simple solutions like an FAQ in a really visible place on your website and pinned posts on social, letting people know that you have a longer response time now. Those sorts of things could be easier.
0: I like something you said about giving a personality to Maximo, personifying this inanimate object or this historic thing. It makes me think for a lot of the folks that are tuning into this webinar that they might be at a historic house, they might be at a park, a botanical garden, a museum focused on art or other inanimate objects. Do you think that there's something to be said about giving personality to things that historically maybe haven't had a contemporary personality, as I feel in a lot of ways, that's what both of you are doing. Sloan, you're lucky that your snail guy already has a little bit of this personality, but he's probably providing personality to mollusks. And Caitlin, you guys are providing a personality to things like dinosaurs. What would your advice be to an organization that doesn't know where to start about giving a personality or, or flavor or color to the things that they already have. Is it a big challenge or are there some small steps that you can take?
1: Yeah, I think for us, we were in a very rare situation that I hope no one else ever finds themselves in, which is we already had a popular dinosaur with a personality. And then we brought in another dinosaur and we were like, gosh, how do we make this one just as popular as the last one, which I don't know that we will ever do given Sue's longer history. We had that weird context there, but I think you're totally right that personality can come through in a lot of different ways, like finding the person that you hadn't considered before to be a spokesperson for you. And of course, you have to depend on what your brand and your voice already are. You don't want to try and deviate from that and create Mm -hmm. something that's not authentic to what you already sound like.
0: And, and speaking a little bit more about creative personality, Sloan, you've published children's books um, and have experience crafting content specifically aimed at younger audiences. Do you have any special messaging for your children or your young adults? Or do you use any specific channels to reach them? And do you find that you bring your experience as an author to your role at the museum? So far
2: for... for- for direct channels, we're actually trying to talk to the parents, right? Because they, they have the credit card, they have the wallet, and they ultimately make the decision For as far as direct communication. Oh, do you want to address something I saw in the comments? A lot of people were talking about how TikTok users are are young and, and by and large they are Gen Zers, but it is um, getting a lot of parents of Gen Zers these days, especially as they're stuck at home with their Gen Zers. But I think there's a lesson... And I'm, I'm going back to the how do you convey information for children and keep them engaged. I think there's a, a lesson from Pixar that probably anybody can can take is that it might be designed for children, but it really appeals to adults. And especially with, with museums of all sorts, there's no age expiration on wonder, right? You can create, say, dinosaur content aimed at kids that will still capture parents and i think there's a there's a balance of not i really don't like the phrase dumbing it down for children because because um it's really making it accessible for them to receive again that pixar model i think is the way to go because if you can if you can keep it appealing to their their grown-ups that's the perfect
0: great and i want to i want to pull in a question from the audience shauna butts over at the niagara historical society and museum in ontario canada wants to know, what is the best way to reach out to students and teachers who are now doing e-learning and teaching at home? How can we collaborate and support these audiences without inundating them? And Sloan, I think you, you talked about the parents and the role of the parent, and if you're able to reach them, then that's a huge success. When it comes to the teaching at home, can you speak a little bit about what you're seeing and maybe what your museum is doing right now?
2: Yeah, with the caveat that we're still figuring it out, you know, because gotcha. as we I think everyone um listening knows that these best practices are emerging right now because we're going from come here physically to experience it to how can we share our expertise with you. And I'm also as a parent I'm experiencing this now firsthand because we're still enrolling our kids in their music lessons and even their taekwondo lessons and things like that. And it's no longer passive for the parent, right? It's parents now involved in, if not at least getting the kid on Zoom and ready to go, sometimes actively facilitating. Sometimes there's a, all right, now we're going to give you an assignment. Uh, Everyone check back in on Zoom in 45 minutes. So there is a real um opportunity i think for all of us to figure out not only how to engage those parents but how to facilitate dialogue through with parents and children after the session's over right after the Mm -hmm. after that experience is over how do you keep it going and i think that's really fertile and unexplored ground for, for a lot of us as marketers right now surely our our education colleagues have been our experts at this
0: but sorry if that was
2: a little bit rambling
0: No, 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 that was helpful. And and Caitlin, what are some of the things that the field is doing to reach students and teachers and and parents ultimately to get some of this educational content in front of them in their own homes?
1: Yeah, we are definitely also still figuring it out. We, just last year, as part of a continual update to our website, we added a bunch of learning resources to the site. And since the, the closure, we've been working really closely with staff in our learning center And what they've been doing is super helpful in going through our pre-existing learning resources and identifying ways that they might be tailored or adjusted slightly so that as they stand now, they're meant for teachers to use in a classroom setting, but adapting them so that they could be used by parents in a home setting too. That's just the start of where we are. And then I think back to the question of younger audiences and multi-generational learning, I think that's totally spot on. And a lot of that is probably happening at home now too. I think thinking about how non-traditional learning resources can be, provide a source of learning opportunity in a less formal way.
0: Great. And I have another question from the audience. This comes from Caitlin Andres at the Natural History Museum of LA County in California. She wants to know, I'd love to hear some discussion around engaging volunteers and docents in this capacity, not just the general museum audiences. Volunteers are an important subset of our larger museum community and benefit both from general offerings and offerings that are tailored to them as a group. This is a question that I have received a lot of emails about, but we haven't had the opportunity to s- discuss on this webinar. So I'd love to hear how both of your institutions are thinking about that specific segment or group of loyal audience, docents and volunteers.
1: Yeah, I don't know too much about it. It's possible that more is going on in our HR department, which manages that community. We do. We have what we call museum-wide emails that go out to staff, and volunteers are all included on those. Since the closure, we've had really robust communication from our CEO personally. He doesn't normally write those types of messages directly to staff, but we've been positioning him as the person um, who represents any updates and those are going out to all um, staff and volunteers. Sloan,
0: and do you have anything to add about that? We've talked a lot about segments and how different content is tailored to these different segments. Do you, are you guys doing anything differently about volunteers and, and docents right now?
2: Again, we have the appropriate work-related channels and supervisor channels to speak directly to to volunteers and docents. We do notice a lot of volunteer and docent Engagement on social media. This isn't quantified, this is anecdotal, this is just people who whose names I recognize. I, I do notice a pretty engaged base on all of our channels. And that's a nice thing about social media is that we're talking about TikTok being young and there's all there's so many jokes about Facebook being skewing a little older. It's a microcosm anyway, which means that, that if our volunteers want to engage. They can use social media and, and find us there. We all, I, all sh- I should also say that Tim Pierce, our mollusk guy, has about a half dozen volunteers who work directly for him. And they're very proud of him. They share his, his social media celebrity. That's a model that, that works throughout our collection departments. There's a lot of volunteers who aren't just visitor-facing who are also pretty engaged at all levels in the museum and and respond, if not on social media, then they follow the newsletters, they follow the urn media. I think there is an opportunity, especially if you're shut down, to think strategically how to keep those folks engaged because you're going to need them when you reopen. They are perhaps our best ambassadors. This might be a good time to generate the word of mouth that they can help us generate while we're
0: closed. That's great. And I, and I want to pull in a comment. I'm, I'm monitoring the chat right now. Brianna S- Sadler said that we're having weekly Zoom meetings with all of our volunteers, going through presentations, having general conversations and asking them to lead the Zoom meetings. I find that to be a really fascinating way of engaging the volunteer community. And also I'm seeing from another Person on the webinar right now that they're doing a volunteer appreciation month, blog post by volunteers, and a surprise video for them. Seems like this community is full of a lot of different ideas about engaging the audience and and each organization is gonna have a slightly different flavor, but we all acknowledge that it's an important thing to to take into account. We've been talking a lot about new channels, including TikTok and chatbots, as a mean to reach audiences. However, these can pose some challenges or at least perceived challenges in regards to reach and accessibility towards people that have less access to the internet or aren't as tech savvy. What do you think about revamping use of old school channels to reach your audiences during this time? Or do you think that it's a non-issue based on some of the research you're seeing or some of the the engagement stats that you have access to?
2: I, I don't want to underplay the seriousness of people who... Right now, are very vulnerable in our in our society because they don't have access, and because we are now a remote society that digital access is a necessity. And I don't mean to downplay that, but social media, phones, internet are are far and away the the most accessible way to reach people. Um, this isn't quite apples to apples, and we we joked about this during our talk before in preparation for this webinar, but it is time for the Colleen Dillenschneider name drop. Last year, she released a study that looked at how people make their decisions, their pre-visit decision, how they reach their decision, what platform they use, and it's broken down by income demographics. And far and away, web, social media, and mobile web are by far the most accessible for every income demographic. And then when you look at more traditional channels, that's when it it skews a little actually wealthier, if anything. You have fewer people who are in those lower tiers able to access it. Social
0: media is not 100% accessible. I don't know if anything ever will be, but it's pretty good. Great, thank you. I want to take a quick moment to mention that we've recently started a weekly digital happy hour called Muse, Zoos & Clues, where we recap some of our favorite campaigns and posts from the week we do a little bit of trivia and have some lighthearted fun to mix things up we'll be inviting a few attendees onto the digital stage to participate so register early and email hello at qzm.com if you want to be involved as a guest and it also gives us an opportunity to address some of these questions that we don't have the opportunity to do right now. So back to the serious natured content. Last week, one of our special guests, Ryan Dodge, gave a shout out to the Canadian Broadcast Corporation, specifically citing the work of one individual there whose job it was to work with Snapchat, one of their channels, to repurpose some of their content directly for Snapchat. And this proved to be enormously successful for engaging the 18 to 24 demographic. And he noted this is a reminder that you don't need to dumb down content for younger audiences. You don't need to write in a certain way so that younger demographics will engage with the content that you produce as long as it's packaged for the platform in a way that's engaging. From what I'm hearing from both of you throughout, it seems like you would tend to agree that's the case, but do you have any advice on how to go about the repackaging process to take existing content to suit these different channels, especially taking into consideration that not every museum's going to have the resources or the staff to focus on those things right now what would your advice be to a museum that's in that position
1: i think sloan hit the nail on the head earlier about not dumbing down content and repackaging content for different platforms is also a great way to fill that gap when you are in that panic mode of i need new content and i don't have access to it I would say that tone is probably one of the biggest things that you should be thinking about when you're adapting for different channels and also motivation. If you're able to get information like that, we have an audience insights team that helped us run a couple rapid surveys, which gave us more information about who is, who is visiting our website and our social channels. What are their motivations for doing so? What are their roles even? Are they a parent, an educator? Do they have children in the household and things like that? I think as always, just knowing who your audience is and what they're looking for.
0: Well, let's talk a little bit more about the audience side. We had a question from Zelly Lewis at the Brooklyn Historical Society in Brooklyn, New York. How are you going about collecting this feedback about what your audiences need? How do we avoid making assumptions about our audiences and use their responses and audience-driven input around this content?
1: I think in addition to a more formal survey, something we've been doing recently is just asking people what it is that they want. And you can even do that in a way that is a form of engagement in and of itself. For example, on Twitter, we've been re- running a museum request hotline, which is where we just put out the call. What do you want to see from the Field Museum? What's something you had planned to see and weren't able? What's a favorite specimen or display from the last time you were here? And that immediately is just giving us the topics and the subject matter that people are interested in hearing about.
0: Great. And Sloan, do you have anything to add? I think social media
2: gives us such an opportunity for dialogue. So exactly what Caitlin was saying not only does that dialogue inform you, but it also broadens your reach, right? Because yeah. everybody in those networks sees their contacts with you. It's it's a good time to exploit all those channels for what they're worth. We have identified our audience as four culture segments that, and, it, and it, we're looking at how they like to receive information and what they like their experience to be. And it's not necessarily museum goers versus non-museum goers it assumes they're all part of our fans anyway it's just how they like to receive content from us and what we've observed is some people prefer facebook some people are passive and want a testimonial so they wait until someone on facebook in their network comments or, or shares and then they chime in Some people think Facebook is yesterday, and so they're more likely to be on Twitter or Instagram. There's definitely a different entryway for each of those people. And and it takes a lot of work, but you have to um, customize the the offering for, for each one of those segments. I think that right now, they're dying for content on their screens, and they're dying to engage with us. It's, it's a really fertile time to send out surveys and engage in simple, like, like the Q&A that Caitlin uh, mentioned. I think that's a great idea. It's, it's, the time is now for that, I think. It will, it will tell us a
0: lot. Excellent. I have a question for both of you. More recently, we've been discussing the topic of hybrid membership and visitor engagement models. It's being discussed amongst those, especially working in museum membership and development departments, this idea that museums will need to consider benefits to their members, not only involving the in-person real world benefits, events and interactions, but also the digital ones. Do you think we'll start seeing more emphasis on these ideas, the distributed omnipresent physical on-site museum, as well as the digital at-home museum experience for visitors, members, and donors? There's a lot of questions in the chat even about monetizing that content now and and into the future. Do either of you have any thoughts about that? Are you starting to uh, take part in discussions internally about this hybrid model?
1: It's definitely something we're thinking about and have not figured out yet. We're not quite at the monetization conversation, but certainly the how do we provide special interest or smaller audiences with unique experiences, um, especially ones that used to be physical events in the building. And so, for members, one that has risen to the top is this conversation with a scientist model, which was a real event. And then at the same time, we were hearing from our learning center oh, we want to do our meet a scientist program virtually, also. Pretty much the same exact format, different audiences, maybe a different setup in terms of is it live, is it pre recorded, yeah. is an educator facilitating? But I think making those connections and seeing what has risen to the top has allowed us to prioritize that model so that we can make sure it works. We can get it on a regular schedule. We can understand which audience it's for and when. That's just where we're starting out on that front.
0: Great. So you're at the first few steps of a very long, exciting journey in that regard. (laughs) Sloan, how, how about you guys over at Carnegie?
2: Uh, It's a very similar situation. In fact, there were immediately before this, I think I was on two Zoom meetings with different departments about uh, this very subject. Um, I think that now's a good time to try this out because people, I think, are going to be by and large forgiving. They're going to allow us to pilot different things. Also, the fact that right now, most of us are probably offering them for free because we haven't figured out the monetization um, model yet. It's a good time to, to gather that intelligence and to fail with very little risk compared to when our reputations are perhaps more on the line. But I do also think that some kind of hybrid is inevitable. If you look at every, again, Colleen schneider I'm dropping her name again, um, she's been doing really great work on when are people going to feel comfortable returning to museums and cultural experiences. She has different samples per region, and it's really insightful and Bad news is that most people seem to say when there's a vaccine, which is, is yeah. for a long time. Who knows what the new normal will look like, but it probably will require a hybrid of, of actual and and virtual experiences. And right now, we're also creating the expectation during these next couple months on the horizon that that we can offer those. So we're actively training people to expect those experiences in the meantime. I think it's inevitable.
0: Thank you. Yeah, we've been talking a lot about this, the reality, the new normal of what happens when people start to slowly make their way back to museums and cultural attractions and cultural venues, knowing that it's going to be imperative that there are these Assurances made about just about everything, the safety, the social distancing, that your touchscreens have been cleaned or maybe they don't even exist. Maybe the digital kiosks don't exist as an added comfort that there are more touchless, frictionless realities and ways for people to engage with your content. And I think more importantly, the vocalization or the communication of that reality to people so that you are reducing any possibility of risk. You're giving them comfort that when they return, they know it's a safe place for them and that you've taken all necessary precautions. We've been mostly talking about the remote digital experience today, but I think that it's more important to start sooner on this path, knowing that, yeah, people are going to physically return. There's going to be a hybrid and a lot of consideration needs to go um, into that. It's a brave new world. It's a really interesting time to reimagine and of what we've all been hoping for, at some organizations, for what these experiences look like. I want to bring in a question from outside of the museum and cultural community that I was looped into a couple days ago with Scott Kirzner, um, who's a journalist at the Boston Globe, who was pinging Sebastian Smee, who's a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist at the Washington Post, and I got looped into all of this, and... He wanted to know, and keep in mind, he's not a museum professional. He's not watching the museum news the way uh, a lot of us are. Are museums doing any special live tours with Facebook Live or Zoom while they're closed? Curator-led conversations with a scientist, I know Caitlin, you mentioned, um, with the ability for audiences to ask questions on the fly, but moreover, where participants could either donate or buy tickets to the virtual event. And there's all kinds of virtual and remote content that are available for people. A lot of it isn't real time based on the reality that the venues are physically closed. But I think hearing this from someone outside of the field that as a person who wants to support the institution, wants to engage with the content, also wants to know how they can give you money or pay what they want or make a donation, I thought was really fascinating to think about. And again, a lot of people have been asking this. I'm I'm curious if either of you have been seeing any live tours that have caught your attention recently or ones where they're asking for some financial consideration?
1: Yeah, I think I saw someone mention in the comments that a couple of zoos have been doing a great job with this, and I think that's 100% true. I think for us, we have had a hard time uh, walking the line of giving people access to the physical building while it's closed and being clear about who our essential workers are, because we don't have people who care for live animals. So I think that understanding is much more implicit if you do have live animals. We haven't gotten to the point of being in the building, seeing the spaces, but I think it's possible as time goes on. And I think we'll be at a point where our exhibition staff will need to be back in the building working to actually build exhibitions. It's definitely something we're we're considering down the line, but probably not immediately
0: great and Sloan do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah again
2: similarly we are very um, strict on who we are deeming essential personnel right now. Unfortunately for this offering that's not anybody who has the, the skill to to take a camera through the museum and offer a virtual tour. I think going forward we will have to figure that out and again I think that A lot of museums, when we return to, when we emerge into whatever the new normal is, I think it'll probably be standard operating procedure to create more virtual tours because they're certainly in demand right now.
0: Absolutely. And one thing that I caught wind of a couple days ago, and then I saw the New York Times did an article about this morning, was that. There are even museums right now that are introducing telepresence robots to give people remote access to their museums. The Hastings Contemporary over in England was one that's doing this, and we were joking about this before the webinar, that just get a Roomba, your little robotic vacuum cleaner, attach a little uh, broomstick to it, and put an iPad on it, and there you go. You got your makeshift telepresence museum tour guide. But but all kidding aside, we're hearing a lot of the same things right now about this being a consideration, a very serious consideration today, but also something that will be phased in more permanently as part of the hybrid model. But it is exciting to see that there is a huge interest from the public for this content during times like these, because it is in times like these that museums and their culture and their educational content can provide you with those comforts in this really challenging time. Um, if I can add,
2: um, this just occurred
0: to me, it might
2: someday prove to be a, a boon for accessibility, right? It if absolutely people, is. Absolutely. If people with with um, compromised immune systems, with sensory sensitivities, this could be a great accommodation begins to, to be part of the, the standard
0: offering. Absolutely. I'm really happy you made that point, Sloan. We only have about eight minutes and I want to do a little bit of rapid fire Q&A before going to our big, beefy closing questions and closing notes. So I grabbed a couple questions from the audience specific to TikTok that I think would be really easy to answer in less than a couple of words or feel free to elaborate if necessary. Josh Human at the Power Plant Contemporary Art Museum in Toronto, Ontario wants to know, how costly is it to create a video for TikTok? Or any platform for that matter. I'd love to hear how much is it costing your organization Sloan to create TikTok content? And Caitlin, how costly is it to create the content that you're doing for Sue?
2: Right now, it's, it's, it's fairly minimal because, you know, it's, it's staff time and it's, it's an iPhone, right? So it's, it's, it's pretty minimal.
0: That's great. Caitlin, how about you guys?
1: Yeah, same for us. We have basically one and a half people, me being the half dedicated to producing social content. So it really comes down to staff time.
0: Excellent. And it seems like there's not a huge difference between the amount of time to create a TikTok video versus an Instagram video or anything. Else. It just comes down to staff time. Um, not a lot of additional expenses related to it. So that's all great news to hear. Which um, I would
1: add briefly, just that staff time is is also really important as a consideration in terms sure. of all your other priorities and things like well, that.
0: Let's even, let's even riff on that for a quick second. How much time is it taking to produce one of these 30 second, 1 minute, 90 second videos. Is it taking a week? Is it taking a day? Is it taking an hour?
1: That's a great question. I don't know exactly. I would say it's probably about an afternoon physically filming on an iPhone. We also have a stabilizer which is really helpful. And then probably another 3 or so hours maybe to edit a couple videos that come out of that footage. So, yeah, that's that would be my estimate.
0: Okay. So it sounds like a couple hours per video produced. Does that sound yeah. about right? Yeah. Okay. That's that's not bad at all. Alex Miller wants to know how can we utilize formats like TikTok while maintaining our academic voice?
2: TikTok might not be the right. Medium for that. As I said earlier, it might, it might just be a gateway drug that attracts a lot of people to your brand and gives them the bare minimum of the academic voice. And those people who are ready to, to receive deeper content can engage with you elsewhere. But certainly we have our curator of mollusks is a brilliant man who has conducted research that shows climate change impact on snail populations. And we haven't figured a way to convey that accomplishment on TikTok yet.
0: But there are other channels for that. For sure. Well, thank you for answering those so succinctly. And I think that hopefully people will have some idea in mind when they go and approach some of these short form emerging platforms with their content. I want to note after this webinar, we're going to compile everyone's questions, ideas, and solutions into one living and breathing document. We're going to share it publicly with the community. So feel free to share your thoughts here in the webinar chat or email them over or tweet them or send Sloan a TikTok video or something of the sort, preferably including mollusks. And more than anything, I'm confident that any questions you might have can be answered by someone in this community. The fact that you're here shows that you're taking proactive steps in preparing your institution And we're all in this together. We're all going to get through this together. It's a really difficult time, but here are the people that will support you through this really challenging and uncertain time. Before we tune out, I want to ask one big question from both of our our incredible uh, guests and panelists that joined us today. Caitlin, can you leave us with one big idea that we can bring back to our organizations during this time?
1: Yes, it may not be a groundbreaking idea, but... I would say new isn't always better. Revisit some of your favorites or biggest hits, the things that your community already knows and loves about you, because I think those familiar things can be really reassuring, especially during this time.
0: Thank you. That's great advice. And Sloan, how about you? Yeah. Along those lines, use what you have, right? Find the talent that's
2: already there and um, don't reinvent the wheel.
0: Excellent. I love that. Don't reinvent the wheel. Some of the things that you've done in the past might be the best things to reintroduce to your community. I think that that is applicable to organizations of every shape and size. I'm so happy that both of you have have put that out as your idea to run with. Thank you, Sloan, for joining us today. Thank you, Caitlin, for joining us. It was a blast to discuss some of these new and old ideas and strategies around thinking outside the box, thinking a little bit more creatively to reach audiences wherever they are. Today, we know that they're quarantined at home in most cases. And I hope that you and your families and your peers and your community are safe and sound and healthy during this time. There's a lot of uncertainty, but this gives us light of so many new opportunities. And it's an incredible time to discuss them and to bring them to the global community. So I thank you for your expertise and for sharing this and for everyone at home who's tuned in. Thank you so much for joining us. I I hope that you have a great rest of your week. And until next time, thank you. Thanks a lot.